Let's pray. Father, we do look to You now. We know that You have set before us a great feast of Your Word, both as it is written and as it is visibly symbolized in Your Supper. And so we pray today that You would feed us from Your Scriptures so that You would send Your Spirit into our hearts to make the Scriptures come alive, that our hearts within us would burn with great joy and delight, much as the disciples on the road to Emmaus had their hearts burn within them as they met with the Lord Jesus. And so we pray that would be true of us today. For Jesus' sake and glory, amen. You may be seated. Our scripture passage today is from the book of Ezra chapter 4. It's on page 391 of your pew Bible, Ezra chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there. We're looking here in the book of Ezra at the principles that we need to know as God builds the church. And one of those things is to begin to answer the question, what should we expect as the church grows? And we see that here in Ezra chapter 4. I was picking up one of my daughters at preschool one day, and as I got to the door, she was still working on coloring something or writing something sitting at a table and one of the other little boys who was still remaining his parents had not yet picked him up walked over to her got down on one knee and began to serenade her telling her how much he loved her and I was watching a little puzzled by it and then he got up from his knee and proclaimed that he was going to kiss her and I said now wait a minute Casanova I don't think there'll be any kissing today and of course, the teacher looked over at me and said, I promise you, there's been no kissing going on. You know, every wise father has to watch out for trouble, doesn't he? And every Christian, you might say, and every church has to watch out for trouble as well. Because there is an enemy. His name is the devil. And he is seeking to destroy the church in every way that he can. And what we see here in Ezra chapter 4 really has the fingerprints of Satan written all over it. Let me read for us. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asahadan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of father's house in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates, wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and 
uh, Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to have us uh, to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in, in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city not be, re, uh, be not rebuilt, until the decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. John Calvin, who was one of the greatest reformers, is well known for a lot of the work that he did in the city of Geneva. And in many ways, Geneva was a model city after many years of Calvin's uh, residency there and the church there was in many ways a model church it was a place where political and religious refugees would flock for uh, security for refuge it was a place where the poor were cared for and fed it was a place where the word of God went forward and there was great training grounds for many ministers who went out from Geneva into Europe and indeed had ripple, ripple effects into all the world you might say by the great work that was being done there. And yet in the midst of all of that, if you read biographies about John Calvin, one of the things that you notice is that all this was taking place amidst great opposition. And in fact, at one point, 
Calvin was run out of town primarily by the city leaders because it was the city leaders who still had some sense of control and input into the church. And therefore, they made decisions that were often in opposition to the Word of God and in opposition to what Calvin was trying to do within the city. And so, right alongside this flourishing church where the gospel is going forth and the kingdom is advancing and great works are being done is opposition to the kingdom of God. Because the advancement of God's kingdom always comes with opposition. In fact, you might say that opposition is always on the heels of success in the kingdom of God. Wherever there's success, wherever the church is flourishing, wherever you are flourishing as an individual Christian, you can rest assured that at some point on the heels of that success, there will be great opposition. And sometimes it takes us by surprise. Things are going well and then all of a sudden we get slammed with some opposition from the enemy and we're taken by surprise. It's sort of like the Battle of the Bulge at the end of World War II. It was Christmas time, 1944. The Allied forces had made great advances, but things had sort of come to a halt. And they were very much unexpected. Uh, there was an unexpected uh, surge by Hitler, what is, which is what has become the, known as the Battle of the Bulge, where he marshaled all that he had left in terms of resources and men and supplies in one particular location to see if he could drive through the enemy's uh, lines or the Allied forces' lines in order to separate us. So here, after success, comes a great opposition. And that's exactly what's taking place here. The people of God have had success. They've returned from Babylonia. They have been, once again, reestablished in the land. They have built an altar. They have now built the foundations of the temple. Things seem to be going so well. There are advances that are being made. And yet... The very next chapter we see here in chapter 4 is the adversaries of Judah and of Benjamin. So all of a sudden raise their ugly heads and begin to fight back in opposition. And that's because the church is always being built on enemy-occupied territory. The promise that God made was that there would be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And that one day, even though the serpent would strike at his heel, there would be an offspring of the woman who would crush his head. But until then, and even after then, there will be great battles that will take place. Enmity between two totally separate kingdoms that are at odds with one another. Fighting, you might say, for the same turf. And so we can expect as we advance as a church, as God blesses us, that there will be times of great opposition. And every church needs to be prepared for two things. One, to be able to step into glory one day. That the people of God, through the ministry of the gospel, would be prepared that when Christ returns, that they would be able to step into glory and meet Him face to face. But secondly, that God's people would be prepared for the days of opposition and the days of persecution because they will come. There will be opposition. 
Jesus did this for his disciples. He prepared them for this. We're told in John chapter 15, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And he tells them in the very next chapter, chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In other words, I want to prepare you, Jesus says. There will be opposition. If they've hated me, they will hate you. And I'm telling you this now ahead of time so that you might not fall away, but so that you can endure. Here in this particular passage, this passage reminds us of a couple of things, several things. One, that in the Christian life, we have a choice to make. That's the first thing. We have a choice to make. We're told here in verses 1 that the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles had returned. They were building the temple of the Lord. And so they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. Here they're saying, we want to partner with you. We want to be aligned with you. And there is a choice that the people of God must make in this. Now, on the surface, it sounds quite innocent, doesn't it? We want to help you in your endeavor to rebuild the temple. It sounds as though they want to be kind and partner with them to encourage the people of God. But notice how they're referred to. They're adversaries. They're enemies. And they have an agenda that would take the people of God away from God's agenda for them. And you see that reflected really in what is, might be considered the central part of the passage, verses 6 down through 23. What we see there is really a parenthesis in time because it takes a break from the story here where the people of God are about to rebuild and yet there's opposition that comes their way. And so what the writer here of the book of Ezra does is go on a little bit of a tangent. And for those verses, what he does is explain how for the next hundred years, the adversaries who are living among the people of God in the land are seeking in every way to oppose them. They write three different letters to different leaders so that there would be opposition against the people of God. And so what the writer is trying to do is basically include material that would justify why the people of God would make the decision that they did. That it's not right for these folks to join together with us to build. That they would actually have a harmful agenda for us. You know, the world doesn't want us to be different from them. The world doesn't want us to be different. In that same passage in John chapter 15, Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, the world would like for us to be just like them. Because when, and you may, may have noticed this in your own life, when you are around non-Christians, and the way in which you live your life for the Lord somehow begins to get under their skin and they do not like it. 
Because in some way it, it chafes them. It brings maybe a sense of guilt and shame into their lives. Maybe they feel judged even though you haven't spoken a word of judgment against them. And because of that internal angst within them, what they want to do is join forces with you, or rather have you join forces with them so that you look less and less like Jesus and look more and more like the world. And the Christian faith is an exclusive faith, not in the sense that no one else is welcome. It's not what this text is saying, that non-Christians are not welcome here. But rather to say, it's not that we serve the same God that everybody else serves, but we serve an exclusive God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we cannot wed His agenda with the world's agenda in any way whatsoever. And so we have a choice before us just like the people did. And what we're told here is that they went to them in verse 3 and said, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel. We will do this. And they made a choice that we will not align ourselves with those who would sideline our faith and detract us from the goal of glorifying Jesus. You might say it's akin to where Jesus tells us in the New Testament that Christians are not to be unequally yoked with non-Christians. That's not to say we're not to have interaction with non-Christians, but rather to say we're not to be yoked with them in such a way that they have an influence over us so that they can begin to determine how we live and how we obey God. Because you see, when we make a choice to give in to that and to begin to yoke ourselves with others who would lead us astray, then we've already made a choice away from Jesus. You remember maybe Martin Luther, who had written many books against the Catholic Church, who had proclaimed major changes in the theology of the church, getting the church back to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he was called before the Diet of Worms and asked to recant. You must recant of all the things that you have written about salvation in Jesus. And as the legend says, he declared, here I stand, I can do no other. And in every way, we have a daily decision, a daily decision that we are going to make a choice to align ourselves with Jesus and to serve Him above all. And when we do that, then what we can expect is exactly what begins to take place here. You see, we open ourselves up to attack when we choose to serve Jesus exclusively and so the second thing is not only a choice to make but a conflict to overcome a conflict to overcome see since the first strategy of saying well let's join forces with them doesn't work they move on to other tactics not so much uh, an indirect assault but rather a direct assault against the people of God and you see some of these things one of the things that they do in verse 5, they hired counselors. They 
hired them to bribe and frustrate the purposes of the people. Not only do they do that, but they write letters of appeal to various kings, particularly to the king Artaxerxes. Now this particular letter is many years later that is actually calling upon Artaxerxes to uh, prohibit the people from rebuilding the wall, not the temple, but the wall. And then finally, what we see is after a letter comes back from Artaxerxes in verse 23, that they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So what they're doing here is using all the worldly tactics that they can possibly think of to keep the people of God from rebuilding in Jerusalem. But make no mistake that what is taking place here is not simply an earthly opposition to the growth of God's kingdom, but has behind it the powers of darkness. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, these are some of the flaming darts of the evil one that Satan would throw at us. And here, against the people of God, are all these worldly tactics that are being used all to frustrate the people of God. And you notice the end to, where their, to which their attacks were aimed in verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. They discouraged the people of Judah. Now there's an old story, and you may have heard it uh, on a number of occasions, that speaks of the devil and a sale that he has. And it goes like this. There was a time when the devil felt like that his work had really gained the upper hand and he decided to have, and you might say, a sale, like a, like a yard sale. And he put out all of his tools that he would use. And he put particular prices upon those tools. And he had all these tools on display, envy and jealousy, hatred, malice, deceit, sensuality, pride, idolatry, and all other kind of implements of evil on display. And each of these tools had their own price tag, but there was one tool that was sort of off in the corner. And it was more worn than all the other tools and didn't look very attractive, but it had a price tag on it that was much greater than all the other tools. And someone came along shopping for what the devil had. And they asked the question, why is this tool over here that's so worn out, priced so high? And the devil's response was, that's because it's more useful to me than all these other tools. I can pry open and get into a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with any other tool. And it's the tool of discouragement. It's the tool of discouragement. And you see, I can pry open anybody's heart with that one. And then I can begin to insert all the other tools that would sideline God's people from being effective for Him. And that's the very thing that the enemies here are seeking to do is they want to bring discouragement to the people of Judah. C.S. Lewis once said, if Satan's arsenals of weapons was reduced to one, it would be discouragement because it's the most powerful force that he has to discourage the people of God, 
to making them believe that the promises of God are not secure, that they have nothing to hope in. Because discouragement, you see, is really the lack of hope that things will ever be as we expect them to be. Things like saying to ourselves that we, we never expected that we would suffer in this way. We never expected that we would go without in this particular way. Others seem to have more than us. I'm not growing as a Christian as I expected that I would when I first became a Christian. The church hasn't turned out to be the kind of place that I expected it to be when I joined. My children haven't taken the path that I expected that they would take. Time hasn't made things better like I was told and expected that it would. And since discouragement most often comes at the places where things that mean the most are taken away from us. Here, for instance, it's the building of the temple. It's what means the most to the people there. Satan knows that when he attacks, he can attack the things that mean the most to us and bring discouragement by taking those things away out of our lives. And you see, it doesn't come all at once for us a lot of times. Many times, discouragement is actually the end result of many disappointments. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment until we begin to be worn down to the point where all of a sudden now we find that we are discouraged and no longer able to believe the promises of God. My friends, this is the work of the enemy. It's what he wants to do in your life to bring discouragement here. And friends, when the church gives in to discouragement, then we are no longer effective instruments in the kingdom of God. That is what happens here. We're told in verse 24, the work of the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem stopped. Why? Because they were so discouraged by the opposition of the enemy. And you see, when the church becomes discouraged, sometimes even surprised by the discouragement that comes upon us, then we no longer labor effectively for the Lord. In fact, here it's for 17 years that the building of the temple was stopped. For 17 years, they're ineffective. Friends, God has blessed us greatly. He has blessed our church. And I think everybody here senses that there are great blessings that have been poured out over us over time. And we rejoice in those things. But the first thing that the enemy would have us believe is that discouragement would never come. That opposition would never come. That assaults would never come. And a good and wise Christian and the wise church will always be vigilant and ready. Ready and waiting. Prayerful. Because the attacks will come. Because the enemy would seek to bring us discouragement. Now this text doesn't tell us what to expect, or excuse me, what to do. It just tells us what to expect. But let me mention several things that I think we can draw out of this. One is 
that oftentimes discouragement comes to us simply because we're fatigued. Here we see a 17-year period where the people of God are facing opposition. In fact, if you include all the letters that are written, it's really almost a century worth of opposition to the building of Jerusalem. And fatigue begins to set in. Now, sometimes we actually mistake physical fatigue for discouragement. And it may just be that what we need are a few good nights sleep, maybe some, some good eating, maybe exercise. Maybe that is all that we really need is to get healthy physically and we'll realize that we're not really discouraged. It's just that we're physically taxed at this particular point. And sometimes that's all that we need is a sense of physical refreshment. But not only fatigue, also there's a real need for fellowship here. The people of God are being scattered once again. They're no longer joining together in this work and fellowshipping with one another and seeking encouragement from one another. And if you've ever been through a time of discouragement, you know that one of the first things to go is fellowship with other believers. Seeking their encouragement. Asking for their prayers. And asking them to, in a sense, uphold you as you go through a time of discouragement. But also beyond that, there is the need for praise to God. Remember the last chapter? They gathered together and began to worship the Lord. They rebuilt the altar. It was the first thing that came to them. This is what we need to do. We need to praise God. And in times of discouragement, one of the things that we actually need to do is to stop thinking so much about our circumstances and our dilemma and just simply offer praises to God for His grace. After all, where would we be in this particular hour if it were not for the grace of God? And so we need to praise Him. And finally this, sometimes you just need to keep moving forward. You just need to keep moving forward. It's one thing that they failed to do. They stopped the building. Sort of like riding a bike. As long as you're on the bike, pedaling and moving forward, you will not fall. But as soon as you stop pedaling and the bike comes to a stop, that's when you're in danger of falling. One of the things that we need to keep in mind in times of discouragement is that we just need to keep putting one foot in front of the other by faith in God. Keep moving forward. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book on uh, the dialogue really between one senior demon and one junior demon, a book called The Screwtape Letters, he gives this advice, the elder demon to the younger demon, saying, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do the Lord's will, looks round about a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why He has been forsaken and yet still obeys. He says that's when the Lord and His people have us. When they keep pressing forward. When they keep obeying all contrary to the circumstances that they live in. And the devil recognizes that's when God's people have us. That's when they've overcome discouragement. When they keep obeying, keep moving forward, because they walk by faith and not by sight. Well, the last thing that we need here 
is not only to know that we have a choice to make, that there's an opposition to overcome, but also a God who sustains us in times of discouragement. Verse 24 does say that they stopped the work on the house and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And as I mentioned, that was 17 years that they stopped. But the people of God didn't go away. That's because they have a great God. We have a great God who constantly sustains us. You know, it's interesting that God doesn't speak in this chapter. Actually, it doesn't refer to any action of the Lord. The only thing it refers to is His name being placed upon the temple. God doesn't tell us how to fix it. He doesn't give us clear things that we ought to do to make it all right again. But He simply sustains His people in the midst of great discouragement. I mentioned Martin Luther earlier. There's a story about Martin Luther where he was in a period of great discouragement and depression. And his wife Catherine, who he often affectionately referred to as his little rib, speaking of Adam and how Eve was made from a rib from Adam. But Catherine one day got the idea that when she woke up, she would put on her funeral black, her mourning black. And she went into the kitchen where Martin was to prepare his breakfast and Martin looked at him, or looked at her, and he saw that she was wearing all black, and he said, Why are you wearing your mourning black? Who died? And Catherine responded by saying, Didn't you hear? God died. And Martin got the point very quickly. He had been walking around as if God had died, in great discouragement and despair. Wondering, where is God in all of this? And really what she was trying to say is, you've been doing the wrong thing. You've been pretending as if God is dead and actually God is alive. And He has been sustaining you throughout all of this. And the same is true we could say for the people of God here. That even though they do not continue and press on, yet the Lord sustains them. In Psalm 42 and 43, which is a psalm of Someone who is barely holding on. Barely keeping their faith together. And the question around him is put to him by his enemies. Where is your God? Where is your God in all of this? Where is the one who promises to take care of you and watch after you? Well, he's sustaining us. Sustaining us at every moment. Because you see, Jesus was the one who tasted discouragement for us isn't he when he was in the desert being tempted by satan himself when he was walking with his disciples for three years and their spiritual dullness seemed to continue on and on and on and they never seemed to get it or when he was in the garden of gethsemane experiencing all the powers of the kingdom of darkness coming against him and there was great discouragement. And Jesus tasted it for us. But you see, just as the Heavenly Father was with the Son, even in His most darkest hour, Christ is always with us in our darkest hour to sustain us. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, once wrote that Christ is never nearer us in power to uphold us 
than when He seems most to hide His presence from us. Even when all seems dark, even when it seems God is the furthest from us, He is constantly fulfilling His promise to sustain us, to be with us, and to never forsake us. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans. These are some of the most pastoral words in all the Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God sustains. We have a gracious God who is always at work. And our weakness, our frailty, our own discouragement never nullifies the promise of God to walk with His people and to sustain them. Went to Ukraine on a mission trip a number of years ago and there's a large church in that city that we were partnering with and they had planted 60 churches in the surrounding area. 60 churches in 10 years. And one of those churches we happened to visit on a Sunday morning. And the nickname of the church was The Ark. And that's because the land which the government had approved for them to build upon had a spring under it. And they were always dealing with water coming up. And so The Ark was an appropriate name. But it was also a great reminder for them, I think as well. A reminder that just as Noah and his family were completely dependent upon the Lord to sustain them in the ark, the church is completely dependent upon the Lord to sustain us at all times, in every way, no matter what period of discouragement we grow to. Friends, one of the things that we have to do in the Christian life is learn how to live with discouragement. It is part of what it means to follow Jesus because it's part of what it meant for Jesus to walk in this life. And over the next couple of weeks, that's part of what the Scriptures in Ezra tell us is how to live with discouragement so that the enemy doesn't get the upper hand, but that we continue to labor for the Lord and to be faithful to Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that sometimes it feels as though we are being overwhelmed with discouragement. And yet your sustaining grace is with us. Help us to believe that it is all that we need. For you are all that we need. Father, we pray now that discouragement would never overtake this church. But that you would guard us from the enemy that You would help us to be vigilant and to watch, to pray against it, and to seek Your strength that only You can provide as we do great battle against the enemy, seeking to build Your kingdom right here in Hendersonville. And so we ask for Your blessings in this. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.